The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. We have today Oisín Wall, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland in the School of History in UCD. And I imagine most of you know um, Oisín, um, and uh, he's working on a Wellcome Trust-funded um, project, Prisoners, Medical Care and Entitlement to Health in England and Ireland, 1850-2000. Um, I imagine we get a feel for the kind of research you're doing, so I won't go into it too much, except to note uh, his first monograph, Examine the relationship between psychiatry and counterculture in 1960s London, the British anti psychiatrist from institutional psychiatry to the counterculture, 1960 to 71. And some of you might have seen the, uh, the exhibit up in uh, Kilmain in jail, um, Living Inside Six Voices from the History of Irish Prison Reform. So, Ashin um, will talk for a little while. I don't think we're linked up to our clinical sites, but, but there you have it. And we can have a chat afterwards with any talks or any, any questions or that, if you're okay. About that. Great, great. Well, I think we're working now, so far as we're going to be working. So do you want to go on ahead? Thanks. Thanks very much. Uh, so before I begin, I want to give a quick content warning. Um, as you probably guessed from the abstract of the paper, um, there's going to be a lot of references to institutional violence, self-harm, suicide, drugs, and a whole lot of other um, potentially difficult stuff, so if you feel like you need to step outside for some air at any point, I won't be offended. Um, the organised prisoners movement... Uh, no, yeah. Um, yeah, there we go. The organised prisoners movement uh, emerged quietly but gradually in many countries in the late uh, 1960s and was catapulted into the limelight in 1971 by the Attica Prison Rebellion in the USA. Within two years of that, uh, most of Ireland's ordinary prisoners, that is to say, the prisoners who didn't have political affiliations, were members of the prisoners' union and were actively taking part in strikes and other protests. Between 1972 and 85, the public discourse about prisons and prisoners in Ireland was transformed. On the left, uh, you can see some, representatives, some representative examples of how prisoners were discussed before 1972, uh, and on the right, yeah, on the right, you can see examples from the 1980s. You can clearly see that the sh you can clearly see the shift in language uh, that Ireland. Um, sorry, uh, so you can see things like uh, the references to people as animals, um, the prisoners on a diet is a joke about uh, prisoners being put on a punishment diet of bread and water for 50 days, uh, well, 28 in the first instance. Um, again, prisoners being referred to as animals, rats, uh, and every reference to any kind of protest in prison is referred to as a riot. So then by the 1980s, uh, things have changed completely. So protests are no longer riots, they're, pro they're protests by prisoners. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of, of seeing their protests as legitimate issues. So the toilets are degrading in the women's prison, uh, this fellow is looking for medical attention. Um, you know, they're kind of they're legitimate protests. There's, uh, they couldn't couldn't really be more different ways of talking about prisoners than the early 70s and the the 1980s. 
So in this paper, I'll be discussing the rise and fall of the prisoners' movement, which affected, which caused this, uh, this shift in discourse over the 15 years that they were active. And, and I'm going to discuss the central role of health in their tactics. It will focus in particular on prisoners' use of their own health within the prison and the prisoner rights organisation's use on the outside, uh, outside the walls of the prison of individual stories about ill health and poor medical treatment to draw attention to broader problems within the prison system. Finally, the paper will turn to the role, of, a role that health played in the decline and disintegration of the movement in the early 1980s. So in November 1972, around 80 prisoners staged a silent protest at Port Leash Prison. Guard reinforcements were called in from a nearby barracks, as were the Army Riot Squad, who were based in the Curra. A conference was held between the guardee and the, prisoner, and the prison governor and representatives of the prisoners, who called themselves the Prisoners' Committee. The committee uh, presented the governor with a list of complaints about the conditions in cells uh, and in the prison, and the prison in general, the lack of recreation facilities and the quality of the food. At 11pm the conference concluded and the prisoners returned to their cells. The next morning the same thing happened again and again the guardie were called and again the, ar the army were called out. Uh, around lunchtime, under threat of, of an army incursion into the prison, the prisoners returned to their cells. That evening the visiting committee was called out, and, uh, which is a civilian committee that is responsible for hearing prisoners' complaints but also meeting out certain types of punishment. So the visiting committee was called out and they put the striking prisoners on bread and water for 57 days. That earned them the, the moniker of the bread and water committee. After the, this, there was widespread spread agitation, sorry, allegation of brutality by prison officers. And a rumour circulated that several prisoners had gone on hunger strike, while others had self-harmed, and uh, the significance of which was publicly discussed by the visiting committee, uh, who dismissed it as a couple of prisoners have scratched wrists, and also the joke that you had just seen about prisoners being on a diet. So here, for the first time, you can see health being instrumentalised as an instrument of protest. After the prison authorities had frustrated their collective action, individual prisoners were threatening their own health through starvation and cutting in order to disrupt the prison system. Chris Millard and Ian Miller have both shown that prisoners' hunger strikes and cutting have histories almost as old as the prison system itself, the modern prison system itself. Sometimes this has been ascribed to an adverse reaction to confinement or to solitude, while at other times it's been seen as a protest. The, uh, whichever way, whatever it is, I think we can clearly, we can definitely see it as an expression of prisoner, prisoners' uh, restricted agency, in which the bod their body and their health is one of the few things that they actually have power over. And this is something that we'll see again a lot more of uh, when we come to the case study of Carl Crawley, which I'll discuss in a few minutes. But for now, we'll go back to the prisoners who, almost as soon as the punishment was over, uh, came together again in January 1973 and formed the Prisoners' Union. They elected a committee, uh, including two secretaries and eight shop stewards, modelling it on traditional trade unions on the outside. And they, uh, and they immediately got to work agitating. According to one of the members, the prison authorities intimidated members of the union, forcing the prisoners, uh, several prisoners and five committee members to resign. In spite of this, the union grew to 93 members by the end of March. Perhaps as a result of this, a result of this ill treatment, 
the Union had a number of false starts. In February, they smuggled a letter out. Uh, they smuggled a letter out of Port Leash, warning of or possibly possibly threatening a, a riot. The in late February, it was uh, they called in. Sorry, in late February, it called on its members to begin a hunger strike. Uh, unless the Department of Justice improved facilities in the jail and ended the victimisation of uh, union members. I've not been able to find any evidence that either of these threats will ever follow through. Gradually, however, the union's demands began to crystallise and they became more uh, concerted in their action. Initially, their demands had been quite fluid, often changing from protest to protest. The most common uh, demands early on were for recognition of the union, uh, an extra hour's exercise each day, and for overcoats. And the demands were not only rejected by prison authorities, but prisoners were punished for making them. The prisoners who wanted overcoats, for instance, were moved from working in fairly warm sheds to pulling carrots in what was described as the icy mud. Other prisoners were threatened with bread and water punishments unless they left the Union, and 70 prisoners were refused recreation until they left the Union. On top of these official punishments, the union members alleged that there were regular punishment meetings from prison officers throughout the union's existence. Over the next few years, the dema their demands became crystallised, more uh, structural and more widespread. In May, the union published a list of 11 demands, which you can see here. Um, this, uh, this was soon followed by a wave of sit-ins and labour strikes within the prisons. Although both the November and May protests were more uh, sort of were met with harsh punishments and uh, informal re informal retaliations from officers. Noel Lynch and Danny Redmond, the president and secretary of the union, were able to claim limited victories for their actions. In a letter smuggled out on toilet paper in September of 1973, they claimed that their protests have resulted in a healthier and more varied diet uh, program within the prison and the beginning of the construction of a new toilet block to replace the unsanitary. Victorian bloc that had been there before. This letter, which they smuggled out, the, the only one, incidentally, which was ever published in, um, in a newspaper from the Union, uh, was the Union's first and last public declaration of a success. However, even this very modest boast about minor improvements affecting the health of prisoners, uh, affecting the health of prisoners, was, seems to have been too much for the prison administration. Five days after the letter was published in the Evening Herald, prison, prison officers came to remove four leaders of the Union, including Lynch and Redmond, to the Curra military detention barracks. The official reason given was that the move was to relieve overcrowding in the prison, but the selection of just these four leaders and the timing suggests other motives. Whatever their motivation, the, when the officers came to take away the leaders on September 13th, the prisoners refused and barricaded themselves in their cell. The authorities instituted a bread and water diet for the leaders and uh, a widespread sit-down protest began, with 14 prisoners climbing onto the roof of the building. Over the next two days, the prisoners took shifts sitting on the roof in groups of five, entertaining themselves by singing ballads and shouting, pa shouting at passers-by. While this was happening, two other protests took, took place in Mount Joy. One uh, was a 14-man hunger strike for political status by IRA prisoners, and the other was the first protest by the recently formed Mountjoy Prisoners Union. The new branch of the union claimed to represent all of the prisoners of Mountjoy, and they were protesting to demand, and I quote, more humane conditions for prisoners, 
and to highlight the lack of proper medical, educational, and, rec rec and recreational facilities in the prison. When the last prisoners climbed down from the roof in Port Leash on the noon of the 15th, they had won a partial, if short-lived, victory. The Union leaders were not immediately removed from Port Leash, they were put, uh, but instead they were punished for their mutiny, put on a bread-and-water diet. In protest, they went on a short-lived hunger and thirst strike. Later, around 15 leaders of the Union were moved from Port Leash to the B-based punishment cells in Mountjoy, and here, through the small windows of the semi-basement cells, they agitated the prisoners in Mountjoy, uh, and not long after, 27 prisoners um, tried to get onto the roof, um, for which they received several severe beatings, um, with 10 of them being hospitalised. Not long after this, the Union leaders were transferred to the Curra military detention barracks, where they were kept, from, uh, kept away from the civilian population of the prisons uh, for the rest of their sentences. And that was the end of the Union. There was, that's not to say that it was the end of protests inside prisons, or even protests by former members of the Union. For instance, in 1975, uh, several former members of the Union went on hunger strike in the Curra. But these protests were no longer organised by the Union. Recognition of the prisoners' union was no longer one of their demands, and the press no longer referred to the Union at all. It appears that the harsh, harsh uh, suppression of the Union in September 1973, and threat, the threat of isolation in the Curra for the, the remaining years of your sentence, uh, was enough to deter further activism. Now, a few months before the suppression of the Union, a group called the Prisoner Rights Organisation, or PRO, was formed on the outside. By, it was led by a former Union leader um, and a group of civil rights activists. Unlike the Prisoners' Union, the PRO demand, PRO's demands were mainly structural. Instead, focusing on uh, um, instead focusing on the specific instead of sorry instead of focusing on the specific localized issues that the prisoners' union had, like overcoats for prisoners working outside, the PRO's comprehensive list of demands included things like that prisons should be rehabilitative rather than punitive, with particular focus on education, vocational training, and recreation the reconstitution of the prison visiting committees to include prisoners' representatives and social workers, uh, and they also published a list of prisoners' rights and demanded legal reforms and the addressing of stigma uh, around prison, like the demand that all criminal records should be destroyed five years after prisoners leave prison, and the demand for new prison services, including proper medical and psychiatric care. From its outset, the prisoners' movement was treated with suspicion and outright hostility by representatives of the prison system. In May 1973, uh, in May 1973 uh, not long after the PRO was established, the Minister for Justice, Patrick Cooney, told a meeting of the Prison Officers Association in Cork that the prisoners' union uh, was being run by a small group of violent long-term prisoners who were not interested in prisoners' rights or anybody else's rights, but in projecting themselves in a mafia-like position of power, as power bosses within the prisons. A second narrative emerged around the same time that the uh, around the same time that the uh, the PRO were not mafia bosses, but were subversives and fellow travellers. Subversives being the widely used catch-all term in the nineteen seventies for physical force republicans like the Provisional IRA and Sayer Era. This began uh, when the, the this narrative began when the governor of Portlaoise Prison told an interviewer on Radio Erin 
that the prisoners' union had been set up by subversives. The line quickly took one out against the mafia accusations and was repeated by Patrick Cooney during his tenure for Minister for Justice, 73-77, um, when he, he claimed that ordinary prisoners were being agitated by a core of people with subversive tendencies. Initially, um, initially this core was seen as uh, subversives within the prison themselves, as in mainly provisional IRA um, uh, volunteers, um, and in spite of the challenge, in spite of the, sorry, um, but very soon this became, this core became to be seen as members of the prisoner rights organisation. In spite of the change of government from Fine Gael to Fianna Fáil in 1977, the next Minister for Justice, Jerry Collins, repeated the same narrative, telling the Doyle in 1979 that the actions, uh, the actions of that organisation, meaning the PRO and its associates, have not demonstrated any real interest in welfare in the welfare of prisons, but rather a determination um, to bring, sorry, uh, to bring the prison system generally to its knees and disrupt all democratic means of preserving law and order. So, how were the PRO disrupting all democratic means of law and order? Between its formation in '73 and early 1976, the PRO was almost frenetically active. For their, their first two years, they focused on picketing institutions like Mount Joy and Port Leash Prison. They even, at one point, picketed the home of a senior civil servant, uh, Richard Crowe, who, um, who had oversight of the entire prison system. They also began to publish the bi-monthly journal, uh, Jail Journal, which, uh, which contained articles by prisoners and ex-prisoners about their experiences um, and views on the prison system anonymous articles discussing alternatives to the current prison system, as well as poetry and cartoons. In 1975 and early 1976, they moved to more court-based approaches. They, uh, they spoke at coroner's inquests into prisoners' deaths, and they backed a series of high-profile court cases using uh, press conferences and pickets, including, um, to, to highlight them, including briefly hijacking the uh, opening of the United Nations Congress on the Prevention of Crime and Treatment of Offenders in 1975. So uh, they, also, they also highlighted individual stories in the jail journal with, uh, to, the, uh, sorry, uh, to, to kind of publicize the uh, prisoners' court cases and to highlight individual prisoners' stories, particularly relating to their mental and physical health as a way of winning sympathy for and understanding of the broader issues within the prison system. The Prison Officers Association, or POA, called these early tactics a smear campaign that was exploiting the legal vulnerability of hard-working and well-meaning prison officers, while in 1975 the Minister for Justice called the PRO's activities uh, a subversive attempt to embarrass the state. Although the PRO ardently objected to their association with sub subversive republicanism, they were proud to co-opt Cooney's comment about their tactics, telling the press that this embarrassment has always been there, only stringent security has prevented its reaching the media and public until now. If the PRO has been instrumental in bringing to light the inhumanities of our prisons, then we are happy to be accused of embarrassing the state. To say this is subversive is only an attempt to divert the public from the real issue. Several of the stories highlighting, highlighted by the PRO were both nationally and internationally embarrassing to the state. One of the main examples was that of the story of Carl Crawley. Carl's story came to the PRO's attention during the summer of 1975, 
there had recently been a cluster of four suicides in custody, and the PRO had been, had been using those suicides to highlight the lack of psychiatric provision within the prisons. During the campaign, Carl's mother, Bernadette, approached the organisation to ask for help with her son's case. In the PRO's words, uh, yeah, uh, Carl Cawley is a mentally disturbed young man who has made 17 attempts at suicide and who has succeeded in doing severe physical damage to his whole body. Carl Cawley is held for the full term of his sentence apart from the main body of prisoners. He is held in the base, which is where the punishment cells are located. He is exercised in handcuffs and is handcuffed for all his visits, which take place in a special room. All of this is recognition by the prison authorities that Crawley is disturbed and in need of special treatment. Yet the only special treatment he receives is punitive and not medical. For the best part of a year and a half, Carl Crawley's health was one of the primary discursive weapons of the PRO. The organisation picketed his trials, uh, resulting in several of their activists being sentenced to a year in prison um, under the Offences Against the State Act, and then winning a very high-profile appeal afterwards. It supported his legal battles, uh, providing one of their members, Pat McCartan, as his solicitor, uh, so that he could take a High Court uh, case and an unsuccessful petition to the European Commission of Human Rights, arguing that his treatment amounted to torture. Over the course of a year and a half, the PRO constructed a public image of Crawley as a more or less docile body being buffeted, buffeted about uh, helplessly by the prison authorities. The narrative highlighted his lack of agency and his passive victimhood, depicting him as self-harming, as is, is depicting his self-harming as the uh, inevitable function of his deep-rooted mental illness and the inhuman treatment at the hands of the prison authorities. However, when we dig down into Carl's story, we find a far more complex character who was intent on using his own health and, though, uh, and that of those around him to maintain his own chaotic agency. Crawley, according to one of his psychiatrists, had an upbringing which was common enough for members, uh, for among the inhabitants of Mount Joy at the time. He was born in 1952, the eighth of 12 children. His father, Larry, moved away to England where Car when Carl was an infant, and from there divorced his mother. Carl later told a journalist, Ma, had a, Ma was dealt a, duff, a tough hand and she played it. As a single mother of 11 uh, in 1950s Ireland, living uh, with, with, sorry, single mother of 11 living children in 1950s Ireland, uh, Bernadette Crawley struggled to keep her head above water. And at one point, Carl remembered uh, that the family had to squat in a shed. To cope with the situation, Bernadette regularly gave her children into the care of orphanages. One of Carl's first memories was that of his older brother, Mick, being left unconscious for, for two days after a beating by a staff member at the Bird's Nest, an orphanage in Dunleary. The brothers were eventually taken out of the Bird's Nest and, uh, when, when Carl contracted blood poisoning after another severe beating. After a few months uh, at home with his mother, Carl was sent to an, a different orphanage, this time the now infamous St. Philomena's in Stolorgland. The psychiatrist... Uh, who assessed Carl before his High Court application in 1977, identified two events that happened in St. Philomena, Philomena's, which he believed were central to Carl's development. The first happened when he was eight or nine years old, and one of his friends, Paddy Andrews, died. Carl believed that Paddy had been beaten to death by one of the nuns. He was terrified because he believed that he was ten times wilder than Paddy, and that if he stayed put, he was going to face the same fate. So he went over the wall and tried to get home, but was picked up by Gardie and returned to St. Philomena's. His psychiatrist concluded 
that this event had become a cornerstone of his belief that, and I quote, the battle of authority, the battle with authority was a matter of life and death. The second event happened when he was 10 years old. He had stolen a pound from the tailor's room in the school, and he and his friend, uh, he, his friend, and his brothers were beaten in punishment. The nun administered the beating with a hurley and broke the arm of one of the younger members. Uh, Crawley decided to avenge his young friend's injury when he arrived, and when he arrived in the basement for his beating, he grabbed a poker and hit the nun around the head. When the nun hit the floor, he calmly went back upstairs and got into bed. The next day, he expected to be killed, but he, was actually, he actually only got a few, in his own words, a few clatters. The psychiatrist concluded that the event had become a cornerstone, in a, uh, a cornerstone of his belief that, uh, that if you hit back hard enough at authority figures, the chances are they'll not retaliate, and therefore you'll come out on top. When he was 12, Crawley ran away from the orphanage and slept rough for a while, while he, before he could find a job and his mother would leave him back into a family home. Over the next few years, he held a string of short-term jobs and his mother insisted that he supplement them with what she called his free, a certain amount that he had to steal each, each uh, weekday, or weekend day, um, or else she wouldn't allow him into the house. In 1969, at 16 years old, he was committed to St. Patrick's Institution for Juvenile Offenders for the first time. And between 1969 and 1978, he was committed to prison 16 times and spent four out of every five months inside. At that time, he accrued a very long, what's referred to as a very long CV. Uh, that is the list of incidents that prisoners are involved in uh, while they're inside. This included uh, being transferred, being certified insane, and transferred to the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum 12 times. He received medical treatment 13 times after swallowing a range of objects from batteries to bed springs to bits of radiators. Uh, he climbed on the roof of the prison six times. He set fire to his cell three times. He was treated for having cut or stabbed himself five times. Uh, he attempted to escape five times, although he later claimed that it was closer to 12, including once hiding pieces of wire inside one of his scars so that when he was committed to Dundrum, he could cut them out and use them to pick the lock. So we can see that, that Crawley's legal actions and that the PRO's campaign on his behalf were only the tip of the iceberg. They were the public face of a long and sometimes bloody campaign of ungovernability, which was born from the traumatic events in St. Philomena's, and which he pursued throughout, uh, through a street, through, through, sorry, through strategies of manipulation. Sometimes these manipulations were benign. For instance, on one occasion in the mid-1970s, he made a deal with a prison officer called Soldier. They agreed that when the governor came, Carl would come up to Soldier and politely ask for a brush to tidy his cell. The sol uh, Soldier would tell him to fuck off, and Carl would say, thank you, sir, and quietly go back to his cell. The plan made the officer look good in front of the governor as the tough man who had tamed the infamous Carl Crawley, and Carl got an ounce of tobacco for playing along. But the manipulations were not always so in innocent. In 1977, his psychiatrist noted, after inflicting injury on a person, including himself, he does not feel any remorse or guilt. And later, told, he told Jim Kerrigan, uh, Crawley told Jim Kerrigan, in an offhand way, maybe you do the screw, maybe you damage something. Explaining that for him, there was little difference between smashing up light fixtures and beating prison officers, as long as it furthered the manipulation. Of course, all of this led to severe punishments, but he was willing to take them. On one of his first occasions, 
he was, when, that he was reprimanded in St. Patrick's when he was just 16, the governor put him on, on a punishment diet. Three days on bread and water, four days on bread and water and porridge, and some more on bread, margarine and porridge. And then, to intimidate him, he said, I bet you never thought there was a place as bad as this. And Carl laughed and recalled thinking, I can take, t I can take a thousand times what you dish out. You're looking at a throwback from a kinky fucking nun factory. And the punishments were extensive. By the mid-1970s, uh, one of the cells in B base, the, the basement solitary confinement cells in Mount Joy, was dubbed the Crawley cell, and it was stripped of everything but a mattress and a radio that was left playing outside the cell all day long. Uh, when he left the cell, he was in, in figure of eight handcuffs, which are handcuffs without the chain in the middle so you don't get any movement in your wrists. Um, and he had to wear them whether he was exercising or whether he was just sitting watching TV in the communal areas. Uh, he, ultimately, the treatment became the focus of his unsuccessful application to the uh, High Court and the European Commission of Human Rights. So Crawley waged this extensive campaign against the prison, but his experience of the world as a network of manipulations can also be seen in his relationship with the prisoner rights organisation. As I've already discussed, discussed, Crawley was the PRO's poster boy from 1975 to 1978. His mother gave press conferences with the group Eight PRO activists were sentenced to a year uh, for protesting outside one of his court uh, appearances. He gave power of attorney to Maureen de Burka, a prominent PRO activist, and the organisation uh, had supported his legal battles through, um, and his solicitor, Patrick McCartney, had been a very, or was a very active member of the PRO. However, in the middle of all this, Crawley wrote to McCartney to say that he thought the PRO were conning him and using him for their own ends and he tried, in turn, to extort the PRO. In the summer of 76, uh, the top story on the front cover of the Jail Journal, the PRO's monthly magazine, was the PRO and Carl Crawley versus the state. The article briefly laid out that Crawley's case, uh, briefly laid out Crawley's case, and used it to argue for the need for penal reform and for better psychiatric services in the prison system. Crawley responded incensed, and I'm slightly abridging here because it's a, it's a long letter. Um, he said, Well, Mr. McCartan, you've really made me mad with you. So when we meet again, you better have some answers to, uh, to what is, as to what is your game. The PRO not, you PRO not thought you were conning me, and it amused me to watch how you played, played your game. But you've played a game you knew nothing about, and now you have left yourself open for a high court claim, which I had sent in. Uh, so either's, either use look after my family, that is, Tommy, my kid brother, mother, and baby Neil, for rendering me useless with your fast book method of a story for getting legal work and legal money. So I, uh, so I will have to get back, sorry, I have to go back to crying after uh, my family, after my family, sorry, uh, to look after my family, there we go, um, thanks to the PRO. So within a month of his release, Crawley was on reband again in Mount Joy for larceny and trespass. Uh, and when he was released on bail, bail, he broke into the Central Mental Hospital to steal drugs. So uh, we can't know whether he was in earnest about getting a legal job. Um, it had, after all, been ten years uh, since his last job, and it would be four more years before he got legal employment again. But however sincere or feigned his anger was, it, uh, it, it clearly represents this kind of... Um, his understanding of the world as this, as this series of uh, manipulations. That even um, kind of that even his allies are manipulating him, that he's manipulating his allies in return. Um, that 
That's, that said, uh, within a few months of this letter, uh, McCartan was once again acting as a solicitor, um, and uh, a few months after that, the PRO were back campaigning on his behalf. So what we can see emerging through Carl's story is a tension between the PRO's attempt to speak for prisoners and the, and the continued enforced silence of prisoners. Although the PRO was campaigning extensively on behalf of Crawley, he still needed to maintain his own project of authority against the prison. But, uh, but also, um, he felt it necessary to lash out at the PRO when he felt that he was losing control of his own story. Ultimately, Crawley's story demonstrates the, the limited agency available to prisoners and the important role that violence and self-harm played in expressing that limited agency. But it also highlights a submerged divide within the prisoner rights organisation between the prisoners and the more middle-class civil rights activists who were uh, rising to power within the organisation. This division would, as we'll see later, deepen uh, throughout the PRO's remaining years and ultimately lead to its collapse. By the mid-1970s, uh, the PRO, uh, PRO's activists like Patrick McCartan and Colonel Gibbons, who had joined in 1973 as idealistic UCD law students, were successfully establishing themselves as ambitious young solicitors and were taking prominent roles in the organisation. In later years, McCartan would go on to be a TD, uh, and in the mid-90s, both he and, and Gibbons would be made judges, while Joe Costello, uh, later TD and Minister for State, and then a teacher in a respectable uh, city centre um, secondary school, had also taken an increasingly leading role within the group. Around this time, the PRO also seems to have made allies within the Doyle, uh, who were willing to take the PRO's case to the government. In 1975, William Lochmain, uh, a prominent Fianna Fáil, uh, backbencher, and Charles Hockey, then Fianna Fáil spokesman, for health and social welfare, asked questions um, that so closely mirrored the PRO's arguments that they were accused of getting on the bandwagon. And the Minister for Justice responded in the Doyle, accusing the PRO of feeding lines to, uh, to the opposition, saying, I don't know, um, well, I'll skip most of the quote, but suffice to say, he ended with, um, I'm not surprised that the information is inaccurate, sorry, uh, if they have been the source, if they, referring to the PRO, have been the source of information, that I'm not surprised that the information is inaccurate and slanderous of the medical authorities in our prison. The accusation of inaccuracy seems to have landed home uh, with the PRO. The, the first three years of the group's activities have been focused on shifting public opinion about the prison system, arguing for systemic change, but in a way that appealed to popular sensibilities and sympathies. In 1976, there was a rapid sociological turn uh, in their approach, in which, which centred on building more objective, data-driven, and particularly health-data-driven, uh, case for prison reform. By the end of 1976, the personal stories, which had been the backbone of the jail journal throughout, uh, since its first issue, had almost completely disappeared. And its pages instead were, were filled with annual prison reports, accounts of legal battles, polemics, against, uh, polemics calling for public inquiries um, into the prison system, and so on. The shift from individual experience to sociological analysis is best exemplified, uh, though, by the shift from telling individual stories to conducting a series of surveys which focused on agglomerating experiences into, into a data set which could be used uh, by policymakers. For instance, in 1977, during their protest against the opening of a new juvenile prison in Logan House, uh, instead of collecting and distributing stories about the horrors of juvenile detention, which they had done in the past. Um, 
they organised a survey of young people, yeah, uh, a survey of young people uh, in the in, in the inner city neighbourhood of Sean McDermott Street, focusing on family structures and social problems, uh, and use their findings to argue that more that the money could be better spent on specialised health, education, and social services. 1979 to 1980, the PRO's respectability peaked when they ran an independent commission of inquiry into the prison system, chaired by Sean McBride, the former, uh, the founder of, Am uh, founder of Amnesty International, and the only recipient of both the Nobel and Lenin Peace Prizes. And the same year, they were invited to address uh, the United Nations Congress on the Prevention of Crime and Treatment of Offenders, the same Congress that they had to surreptitiously sneak into and be ejected from five years previously. The press reported on both of these events at length and uh, with sympathy, further indicating their, 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 uh, the organisation's respectability and the growing acceptance of the need for penal reform. However, this shift in tactics away from the, their immediate focus on uh, the concerns of individual prisoners was divisive within the organisation. By 1977, the PRO had suffered, a sh uh, suffered its first split. A group of former prisoners left the PRO to form the Prisoners' Committee, named after the original group that had established the Prisoners' Union in 1973. They told the press that the PRO no longer reflected their needs and that uh, since its more academic turn. In a statement they released uh, to dispel rumours of a reconciliation between the two groups, they said, while we recognise and welcome the dialogue at academic seminars and penology, such as that held by the PRO, PRO over the weekend, to have this divorced from the day-to-day -day reality of running an organising a, organizing a prisoner's association makes it merely an exercise in semantics. So here you can see very clearly the friction forming between the former prisoners in the organisation and the more middle-class activists who are driving the sociological turn. Uh, for the first half of the 1980s, prison reform had, been achieved, um, had achieved almost complete respectability. After the McBride Inquiry published its findings, in 1982, the Irish Catholic, Irish Catholic Bishops' Conference uh, produced a scathing report on the Irish prison system and endorsed a host of the PRO's uh, talking points. And in 1984, the first official inquiry into the prison system in Ireland was established, chaired by the eminently respectable former chairman of the Central Bank, Sean McBride. Uh, when the when McBride, oh, sorry, not sorry, T.K. Whitaker, not John McBride, and um, when Whitaker reported in 1985, he again endorsed a host of the PRO's proposals. Um, meanwhile, the 1980s were a decade of crisis in the prison system, with uh, the prison population almost doubling between 1977 and 1985, with new prisons being opened in unsuitable buildings to accommodate the increase. The decade also brought a crisis of respectability for the PRO as previously submerged tensions came to the surface, tensions which stemmed from the attempt to achieve a degree of bourgeois respectability uh, for an organisation which derived its legitimacy from the fact that many of its leaders were convicted criminals. The first, crack, uh, the, the first cracks began to emerge. Um, the first crack that emerged was caused by the animosity between, as I've already, uh, between former prisoners and prison officers. The animosity had, as you can imagine, always been part of the organisation. You can see it uh, in these two cartoons from the first issue of the Jail Journal, the first two issues of the Jail Journal. Um, they depict prison officers as complicit in covering up the abuses of, uh, of the prison system and as bloodthirsty, violent monsters. 
But as the 1970s wore on, the animos animosity became less prominent. The Prison Officers Association fought a long, drawn-out industrial battle with the Department of Justice, calling for better pay and conditions, as well as improvements in the prison's infrastructure and welfare provisions. So at several points, the PRO and the POA, the Officers Association, found common cause. And although they could never bring themselves to actually cooperate, the PRO remained, uh, and the PRO remained critical of the impact that the POA's industrial action had on prisoners. Uh, there were periodic articles in the jail journal from as early as 1974 calling uh, for members of the PRO to support the prison officers' cause. While this was politically savvy and added to the um, added to the PRO's kind of reputation as a reasonable and legitimate voice for, in the public sphere, it was divisive within the organisation. Um, in, in the summer of 1980, a group called the Prisoners' Revenge Squad began attacking, uh, attacking prison officers. In the first attacks in the summer of 1980, uh, stones were thrown um, at officers' houses and a prison officer was beaten by three men on his way home from work. Stephen Delaney, a member of the Prison Officers Association, told the press that the attackers had been seen at PRO meetings earlier in the summer and that speakers at those meetings had threatened exactly this kind of violence. Margaret Guy, then treasurer of the PRO, um, took a High Court action against the POA uh, and the Irish press who had published the allegations, um, which, ultimately, which ultimately failed. Um, so here again we see uh, a new instrumentalisation of health. Beyond the use of self-harm and the um, discursive instrumentalisation of health that we've already talked about. And this time it was the threat against prison officers' health that, that's being instrumentalised. Again, to achieve prison reform, but, um, but in a very different way. Uh, soon after this, another crack began to emerge within the PRO. Since its inception, the PRO had fought for um, the rights of all prisoners, no matter what their crime, but this certainty was brought into question by the heroin epidemic. Although the dispute was firmly internal, and unlike the disagreement about the sociological turn uh, and about attitudes towards prison officers, it wasn't played out in the pages of Jail Journal. A former member of the organisation who I've interviewed described how the organisation broke up in the early and mid-1980s over a dispute about whether the PRO should represent uh, drug pushers. The, this reflected broader debates emerging within Ireland's uh, left-wing movements at the time and about whether to support the uh, Concerned Parents Against Drugs movement or whether to see pushers um, who were often also addicts um, as victims of the same socioeconomic um, and health systems uh, that, oppressed, that oppressed addicts, um, and to advocate for the availability of medical treatment. It also represented a division within many of the inner city communities that most of the former, uh, oh jeez, um, shall I, um, uh, yeah, in, most of the former prisoners came from um, to, uh, yeah, w uh, between people who were and kind of sympathetic to uh, people involved with drugs and those who weren't. Um, I, so, yeah, 1975, the uh, Prisoner's Revenge Squad comes back and this kind of final jolt to their public image breaks the organisation. Um, and so a lot of the, the tensions that have been forming during the uh, kind of the debates about heroin um, made the whole thing kind of collapse under that weight. So finally, to conclude, health was central to the campaign of the prisoner rights, prisoner rights movement, 
Um, improving medical psychiatric care were central to their demands um, of the prisoners' organisations. More significantly, however, health became the primary instrument of protest. Prisoners on the uh, inside used their own health to disrupt the everyday functioning of the prison, and the PRO used health uh, in, as a discursive tool to highlight broader issues within the prison system. These tactics were successful in winning a good deal of support and legitimising prison reform uh, discourse to such an extent that when the Whitaker Report um, was published in 1905, it was able to make radical recommendations bordering on abolitionist positions, prison abolitionist positions. Uh, indeed, if we look back to this slide from the beginning um, of the paper, we can see how uh, we can see how the the the, 19, the 1980s papers derive kind of the legitimacy of the prison protests um, and the sympathy for uh, prisoners from health-based issues. So uh, this fellow here, he's, um, uh, he's protesting for medical treatment. Um, this rooftop protest was against uh, brutality by prison officers and neglect by prison, uh, prison medical officers. Um, this is about, again, this is about uh, hygiene and the, the terrible um, toilet conditions in the women's prison. Um, and this, again, is about, about hygiene and about joy. Um, so, yes, so health was essential to the whole thing. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there because I'm running out of time. Thank you very much. That is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next ten years. <laughs>